If obedience to the Mosaic system could lead to salvation, then why did the Jewish prophets like Hosea, Isaiah, and Jeremiah speak about the end of this Sinai agreement and the need for a new covenant with God? This question is right at the heart of the dialogue that should take place between both Jews and Gentiles who want to take a serious look at their scriptures. This is the focus of today's Truth Encounter as Dave Wurtson begins our study, inviting us to turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. He was accused of being a traitor and thrown into a pit. No other prophet railed more against the sin of his people, yet no messenger from God spoke such soothing words of comfort and forgiveness. How can such bitter condemnation and sweet forgiveness flow from the same mouth? Let's find out. I want you to turn your Bibles to Jeremiah 31. Probably no prophet thundered as hard as Jeremiah. Probably no other prophet faced more accusations and more problems from his people than Jeremiah did. In fact, at the beginning of this passage, if you look at J Jeremiah 31 in the beginning, verse 2, this is what the Lord says. The people who survive the sword will find favor in the desert. I will come to give rest to Israel. The Lord appeared to us in the past saying, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. I will build you up again. You will be rebuilt, O virgin Israel. Again, you will take up your tambourines and go out to the dance. Here's the prophet that just in the previous chapters was railing judgment against these people, but now he starts to talk about a day of restoration. He preached to the very people that were in captivity in Babylon. He started saying, there's going to be another day of celebration. There's going to be another day of forgiveness. Look at verse 31. He talks about what that day will be like. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant. You need a new covenant when the old covenant hasn't worked. The Sinai covenant didn't work because the people failed. So Jeremiah, in the midst of their destruction, starts to talk about a new covenant, a new agreement. And I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. We're going to get Israel and Judah united again. It will not be like the covenant I made with your forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt. Because they broke my covenant. That's what we've been talking about this morning. Though I was a husband to them, though I was everything I was supposed to be to them, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after that time. This time, instead of writing my law on tablets of stone, I will put my law right in their minds. I will inject it into their minds. I will write it right on their hearts, inside their very personality. I will be their God and they will be my people. There's going to be this intense intimacy between God and his people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. Every single one of the people that are involved in this new covenant will have God dwelling in their own heart. And they'll be able to learn about God by listening to the Holy Spirit teaching them inside their heart. It's an incredibly new thing. Because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest. And then one of the most beautiful differences in this new covenant, for I will forgive their wickedness. I will remember their sins no more. This is what the Lord says. He who appoints the sun to shine by day, who decrees the moon and the stars to shine by night, 
who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord Almighty is his name. Only if these decrees vanish from my sight, in other words, only if the sun disappears, only if the moon refuses to shine, will the descendants of Israel ever cease to be a nation before me. This is what the Lord says. Only if the heavens above can be measured and the foundation of the earth below starts out, will I reject all the descendants of Israel because of all they have done. What does God say? In the midst of the ash heap of the northern and southern kingdoms, he says, God hasn't finished with you yet. God hasn't finished his job with you yet. And what Jeremiah predicted to these people that their whole nation had been destroyed is not that the United States of America would come and deliver them, but the Lord God of heaven said, I'm going to come and I'm going to set up a new agreement with you, a new relationship. And this one's going to be a relationship that will really deal with your heart. You see, what I realized under the Sinaitic Covenant, your heart was wrong. The external things were all right. The temple was great. The law was great. The whole Sinaitic Agreement was great. One problem, you, your heart, says, I'm going to give you a new heart, and I'm going to forgive you. Now, the big issues that are raised is, who's going to bring about that new covenant? How is God going to forgive all this crud in people's lives and give them a new heart and then how is God going to judge all the enemies that don't want to respond to him and those questions start to get into the heart of the promise of the Messiah now when John the Baptist someone that remembers from their Sunday school days when John the Baptist started preaching what did John the Baptist preach can anybody remember John the Baptist? When you go from Jerusalem down to the Jordan River and you begin to hear John the Baptist preach, what did John the Baptist say? What was his message? The theme of the day by the Jordan River is repent for the kingdom of God is at hand or it's near. Repent for the kingdom of God is at, is at hand. Why did so many people come? Why did they get excited about that? Because they knew, you see, unlike most of us, see, a lot of you have been in Sunday school all your lives, and no one's ever put the Bible together for you. You never understood that the whole story was right there in Genesis 1 through 3. An external command, good intentions by the human race, I will not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I will obey you, I will serve you. The first thing man does is break the simple command. God comes down with judgment, the curse of death. But then God makes a promise. I'm going to send a great deliverer. It was all right there in Genesis 1 through 3. And then in Genesis 12, God starts to write the story, the same kind of a story with the people of Israel. And this time he expands on the rules. And Sinai is not, don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Instead, it's, thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Keep the Sabbath day. Don't swear falsely in the Ten Commandments. And the children of Israel, just like Adam and Eve said, we will obey you. It's a good law. We will worship you. Good intentions. But then the whole history of the monarchy and the divided kingdom, as we've learned what we've learned this morning, Second Kings and Chronicles tell us, just like Adam and Eve, because they were sons of Adam and Eve, just like us, you failed. There's judgment, the curse. But in the midst of that curse, God says, but I'm going to create a new day. 
I'm going to create a new agreement. And that brings us to the fact that we need who's going to bring this kingdom. Who's going to bring this new covenant? Who's going to bring God's answer to us? And the Old Testament started to draw a picture. Now you need to understand this because as Westerners, what you want as Westerners is you want, you want it to be like the Encyclopedia Britannica. You know what I mean by that? You want to be able to open up to page 456, Messiah, and then read an article that goes right down through and it says, here's all that's going to happen, where the Messiah is going to be born, and you want it all together in one place. That's boring, for, especially for Israelites. It's much more fun to play a game of Clue. It's much more fun to get a little bit here and a little bit there, and it's kind of a composite picture. In fact, what God does in the Old Testament, these prophets, and you've all heard this illustration, but it's really a great illustration because it's really the way the Old Testament prophets saw things. The prophets looked down through the quarters of time, and it was like they were looking at mountain peaks. They saw the coming of the Messiah, and we're just going to begin, and it's about what the Old Testament talked about with the Messiah. And if your heart's ready to receive it, some of the college students say, well, Dave, in my social religion class or in my religion class, they say, Jesus isn't any different than any other teacher. Why do you believe in him? Why don't we worship Buddha today? Why don't we worship Muhammad? How is your Sunday school religious faith any different from what the Buddhists believe? Well, there's a lot of difference. Because our Jesus Christ was predicted for centuries. And we're going to find out. We're going to go through the Old Testament and see all kinds of clues that God gave. And there are objective reasons why when Phil gets up here and says, My daddy, I believe, is in heaven. How, did, how can Phil make a statement like that? Can a Buddhist get up and say, Well, you know, I talked to my relative about Buddha. And we had a real meaningful talk about Buddha. And I know that Buddha's taken him home to nirvana. He's safe. What's different about that than what Phil said? It's all the same thing, isn't it? In a lot of university classrooms, they say it is all the same thing. Is it? Is it? Can you go down through the quarters of time almost from the beginning and have men that talk about the Creator God who promises to bring a new covenant into the world and then those Old Testament prophets started to look through these quarters and they saw a mountain peak. And we're going to find out. They said he's going to be born in a certain city. He's going to be born of a virgin. He's going to have this kind of a career. And what these prophets did is like they saw one mountain against another because they're going to merge two pictures. In fact, the Old Testament Israelites started to develop two concepts of a Messiah. There was one Messiah that was the suffering Messiah. A Messiah that was going to be rejected by his people that we're going to see. A Messiah that would not have success. A Messiah that would be cut off. The prophets also saw a Messiah that would win a great victory. A Messiah that would conquer all of his enemies. And one of the tensions in the Old Testament was, how did these two Messiahs fit together? In fact, in some of the rabbinic literature, you have a Davidic Messiah. You have a suffering servant Messiah. Then you have a great conquering Messiah. And they thought they were two Messiahs. 
What was happening is that these Old Testament prophets saw these clues. Now, some of you are like me, and you say, well, God, why don't you make it plainer? Why don't you make it easier? In fact, it's even hard. I'm an Old Testament major. That's what I majored in college. And it's really hard for me to, to get it all kind of worked out, even after years of studying it. Why do you make it harder? And the Lord Jesus kind of tests me and says, David, if your heart wants to receive it, you can understand. If you'll humble yourself, you can understand. The clues really are there. But hardened hearts won't ever see it. You see, it's not like an Encyclopedia Britannica. It's more like listening to a good story. You never understand good stories unless you open your heart to the author. You see, if you don't really want to understand, you don't listen to someone. Like, if you don't really want to understand me this morning, you want to understand anything that I'm talking about. Because to understand, you have to struggle. You got to get out of yourself. You got to get into the other person. You have to open yourself up to them. And that's hard to do. Very hard to do. In fact, I notice how hard it is when I sit where you're sitting and I listen to someone else teaching me the Bible and I find that my heart can start going like this. And I say, man, life, how do they ever make it through a Sunday? Because we're all like this. And these Old Testament prophets would say, if you have a heart, you're going to hear what I'm saying. And this is the kind of thing that they began to say. Let's just look. We have time for just one or two of the pictures that these Old Testament prophets gave to these people that after 70 years went back. They went from captivity in Babylon. They went back to Jerusalem and they started rebuilding their city. And the Old Testament prophets began to get these people that were returning back ready for the coming of the Messiah. And these Old Testament prophets began to explain to the people and to tell the people these are some of the characteristics of the Messiah. Let's look at him. Let's look first of all at his virgin birth. Isaiah chapter 7, verses 13 through 7. Isaiah was a prophet that lived in the southern kingdom right at the time that Hezekiah was ruling, about a hundred years before the southern kingdom fell, a little bit more than that. It was right at the time when the northern kingdom fell. In Isaiah chapter 7, the prophet Isaiah said to a wicked king, the king that was ruling at that time was Ahaz. He was the king of Judah at the time when the northern kingdom went into captivity. And Ahaz was not a godly man at all. And if you look at verse 10, it says, Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask the Lord, this is Isaiah 7 verse 10, Ask the Lord your God for a sign whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of men? Will you try the patience of my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son, and you will call him Emmanuel. He will eat curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. But before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land, the two kings you dread, will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and on your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. Now, here's the nature of the clue. At the end of this chapter... Isaiah has a son. In fact, if you look right near the end of the chapter, 
In fact, it's the beginning of the next chapter, verse 8. Chapter 8. It says, The Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with an ordinary pen. Makar shalal hachbaz. Which is a Hebrew phrase that talks about the need for the people to repent. And then it says this, And I will call in Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jebrekiah as a reliable witness before me. Then I went to the prophetess and she conceived and gave birth to a son. And the Lord said to me, Name the boy Makar Shalal Hashbaz. Before the Lord knows how to say my father or my mother, the wealth of Damascus and the plunder of Samaria will be carried off by the king of Assyria. So an Old Testament Israelite reading this would see in what Isaiah predicted that the boy that was born to the prophet was the boy that talked about the destruction of the northern kingdom, the Assyrian invasion. But the word that's used, notice that the NIV translates it in verse 14. It says, a virgin will be with child and will give birth to a son and you will call him God with us. Notice that Isaiah's child is named not Emmanuel, not God with us, but instead this very, very picturesque Makar Shalal Hashbaz. Instead of God with us, it means quick to the plunder. And it speaks about destruction. What I'm trying to illustrate to you is, is it's not as simple. You see, as, as born-again believers, we want to say the Old Testament predicted the virgin birth. And it's just as clear as anything. A Jewish person looks at this, like if you were in, a, in an Old Testament classroom and a Jewish scholar were teaching to you, they would say, the child born here, Emmanuel, is Isaiah's son. And in a way, it is. You see, part of the mountaintop that Isaiah saw was what his own son predicted. The fall quick to the plunder, quick to the spoil. The destruction of Assyria. See, Ahaz, the southern king of Judah, was scared to death of the Assyrian Empire and the Syrian Empire that were trying to attack him. There was all this interplay, a lot like there is in the ancient Near East today. He was scared about it. And Isaiah said, before my little boy gets to be two or three years of age, what you're so afraid of is going to be removed. But Isaiah also said that there was going to be a boy who would be named God with us. Now turn over another page to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9, it's a verse, verses that we often read at Christmas time. It says in verse 6 of Isaiah chapter 9, Now here's another child. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Now we're talking about another baby that will be born. So in Isaiah's prophecy, he sees a near mountain peak, which his own sons, Makar, will just use the shortened form, quick to the plunder, pictures the destruction of what Ahaz was afraid of, the Syrian alliance that had developed against him. But Isaiah also saw another mountain peak where a virgin woman would have a child. 
And the Hebrew word that's used there in Isaiah can mean a young woman or a virgin woman, but when it's translated into Greek, and when the angel of God appears to Mary, and Matthew's Gospel applies Matthew Isaiah 7, 13, and 14 to the virgin birth of the Messiah in the womb of Mary, it uses the Greek word parthenos, which can only mean a virgin woman that gives birth to a child. That's why it's like a clue. It's not like an evidence where there's no way you can turn away from it. There's no way you can reject it. If you, if, you know, it just doesn't overwhelm you. In other words, you have to open your heart. You see, I talked to a Jewish friend and my Jewish friend, all they see is makar, quick to the plunder. All they see is a normal birth. But the story's deeper than that. There's another mountain peak. And the Old Testament didn't just talk about Isaiah's son. It also talked about a child named Emmanuel, God with us. And so at 2 o'clock in the morning with my Israelite guides in Israel, trying to be very honest, not trying to just to say, well, man, there's no argument here. I did with my Jewish friends exactly what we've done today. I talked about the two boys. And then I asked them, I said, okay, you have your Hebrew. They spoke Hebrew fluently. I said, let's look at the name to the child in Isaiah chapter 9. The wonderful counselor, the prince of peace. The mighty God. And I said, it sounds to me like it's talking about a divine ruler. A divine child. And they said, oh, I think it's time to go to bed. And then they looked at me and they were honest and said, I understand how you get that interpretation. But their hearts stayed hard. And you need to pray for David and David. As far as I know, they still haven't softened their hearts. But Isaiah 9 talked about a promised child that would be born of a virgin who would be the Prince of Peace, the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, and he would initiate looking at the next mountaintop, a mountaintop that still hasn't taken place yet. He will institute, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven, a kingdom in which perfect righteousness will be done. So what we've seen in Isaiah chapter 7 is we had a clue. The Messiah is going to be born of the virgin. He will be from the house of David. I want you to really understand what it meant for the kingdom of God to come. I want you to understand that when Jesus was born in Bethlehem and when he came, there were people who knew what I'm teaching you this morning. They had been studying the Old Testament Scriptures. They were waiting for these things to be fulfilled. They're the ones that laid the foundation of the church of Jesus Christ. They started the body of believers. And I want you to understand that. They did put together many of these things. Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, was looking for the comfort of Israel, was looking for the peace of Israel. Mary and Elizabeth, we're looking for the consolation of Israel. What do they mean by the consolation of Israel? They were looking for the fulfillment of these promises from the prophets. That's why I believe today. Because these men could predict and they could give those clues and no other man has fulfilled those clues like Jesus of Nazareth. 
And these prophets don't just speak about his first coming, but they go on and speak about another coming. You see, these prophets, as we close this morning, these prophets had the same kind of anticipation that we did. Only in some ways, I think they faced a lot greater crisis because Jesus has already been here. These men that we've studied about this morning lived on the ash heap of their nation and God's Messiah had never come. As far as they had known, he had never come. They couldn't look back to the coming of Jesus. They didn't even have a completed scripture. And yet they believed the revelation God gave them. And just as certainly as God promised, 400 and so years after, after the close of Malachi, the last Old Testament prophet, this Messiah that God revealed to them would come, came. And just as certainly those same prophets that predicted his first coming talked about when he would be born, that he would be born of a virgin, that he would be born in Bethlehem, and we're going to talk about his career, about his death, about his resurrection, about his ascent to heaven. They also predicted another coming when he would set up the universal kingdom of God upon the earth. And that's what we need to be looking forward to. But in order to be ready, we need to have our hearts soft and receptive and humble because that's the only way that we'll receive the clues.